This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here's your host, Roland Vandermeer. Hello and welcome to Bay Area Ventures, coming to you live from the campus of Wharton here in San Francisco. I'm your host, Roland Vandermeer, investor, venture capitalist, sustainable real assets investor, and a lot more. And on today's show, we'll be talking about money that matters. This is a program, a subset of Bay Area Ventures, but it's really about what matters most and making people, talking to people who really want to make a difference, CEOs, investors, and and really trying to change and impact the world. Today, we're really lucky. We have Angela Tembrook from CEO of Foodery Farms, a leader in the urban farm movement that delivers fresh, healthy, pesticide-free produce to your community. And we'll have an executive from Maj Health, a digital food and nutrition company that activates physical, emotional, and social well-being. Dave Amman, Chief Operating Officer, will be here. If you have any questions for me or your guests coming up, you can be reached, we can be reached at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Anyway, I'm thrilled right now that uh, Angela can join us. Angela. I'd like to welcome you to the program, and I'm looking forward to speaking to you. I think it's only been a few weeks since we last uh, met in person and had an interesting discussion about what you're doing. Thanks, Roland. We're, I am grateful to be on your show today. I am looking forward to this experience. Fantastic. Angela, before we begin, I really want you to kind of give your own flavor of what Foodery Farms is, and, and I'll ask you more about how it came to be later, but it's really important, I guess, to understand the significance of what you're trying to do. Thanks, Roland. What we're trying to do with Food Reforms is basically change the way people access food uh, in America uh, and in communities all over the United States. Uh, what we note um, when I was, you know, farming in the past was that people wanted to be on the farm. They wanted to know their farmers. They wanted to be able to see what their farmers were doing, what how they food was grown and such. And so what we do at Food Reforms, our kind of our tagline is, food in your neighborhood, grown by your neighbors. This isn't the traditional way of growing food, Roland. This is the way in which you will um, – we take all the uh, methods that we have learned in the futuristic types of farming and controlled environment agriculture and such and putting this in communities where farming has traditionally not been done. We are taking areas with, which many people consider kind of brownfields or um, areas that many uh, communities consider wastelands and turning them into gardens of Eden. Whereas we we develop our put our farm there, and community development happens all around us, so we're pleased to be able to bring food to the masses in communities that have been what we consider forgotten, where grocery wow. stores will not go, go. That's fantastic, Angela, and and I really appreciate that intro because it'll set up the stage for a bunch of questions. I'm sure our listeners have as well. And uh, I know that you are based in Jacksonville, Florida, and you were out here looking at what opportunities are out here in California, in the Bay Area particularly, talking to the universities such as UC Davis with the big agricultural program, talking to communities on the peninsula as well as elsewhere around and how you can expand the vision you have, you are creating right now in Florida. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. We're actually hoping um, part of our rapid movement, uh, fast growth company idea, is that we will uh, try to do 50 of these in 50 states in, uh, in a real short time. Um, we know that there's a huge need for uh, fresh available produce to communities all around the United States that simply don't have the opportunity to access fresh vegetables. 
I mean, case in point here in Jacksonville is, is if you get um, products out of Salinas, which, you know, grow amazing vegetables, it travels 1,700 miles to get here. Whereas we can grow products in our facilities 365 days of the year, have fresh available produce to our neighbors. And, you know, many people, when they think of greenhouses, they often think, you know, they can only grow a certain variety, you know, certain, you know, salad greens, herbs, microgreens, tomatoes, peppers, and strawberries. Um, in our facilities, we're finding that we're able to grow upwards of about 31 products. So let's let's frame that a second because that's that's a, quite a statement you just made. And first of all, we're not talking about just putting a farm and a plot of land in a in an urban infill environment. Okay, you're actually talking about putting a greenhouse-like facility, and we'll talk about the special, unique characteristics of your approach as well in a moment. But this is unique in the sense of seeing greenhouses in urban environments or suburban environments that'll feed the neighborhood. That's right. Okay. That's right. So, that's what we're trying to do. Knowing that, okay, and it sounds unique and sounds really daunting and challenging how that can work and the economics of that, and that's that was the most intriguing thing about your vision and mission, and I know you're prototyping them right now in Jacksonville, and you're showing this can work and the vision there, but I think our listeners really want to know about how is this farming different from traditional farming and even a, a normal greenhouse for that matter, because these are not these are complex structures and they cost money and and definitely are hard to make the economics work for most people. Yeah, that's, you know, Roland, that's what we hear. A lot of my fellows who have, uh, are in the controlled environment space, you know, they spend upwards of uh, $450, I've heard quoted for some people, per square foot. What we have found is, is that we've been able to reduce the cost of the overall greenhouse cost by doing some what we call low-tech opportunities in farming to bring what we say is farming simplified. So our greenhouses are designed and built with food safety in mind as well as the manner in which we grow our food is very special. So the, uh, the science of it all is a little different than an, a traditional hydroponic greenhouse, whereas my family has done for many generations. Um, the, you know, we do aquaponics, which you know, many people consider aquaponics to be kind of com not commercial, but in the last few years we've actually seen quite a few commercial entities come along. But what's special about our water and the way in which we are able to grow our products has to do not only with the design and build of our facilities, which are intentional, which are, have biosecurity and food safety measures in the design, but as well the manner in which we produce what we consider our nutritious water, the nutritious water that we have that's proprietary to us that we have been able to develop within our facility, which has uh, the, all the components of the normal soil um, bacteria, fungus, and, you know, a variety of other things that you would find in healthy soil um, and uh, are, are made within our facility. So are you saying you're mimicking organic agriculture in a, in a situation like this, which is a really hard thing to do? It's one of the things I've heard and I've actually felt myself is that, you know, any greenhouse that's using hydroponics or even aquaponics can never mirror organic farming in the dirt with the microbes and the activity. And that's a real challenge for many, many farmers because they try to certify as organic and some are getting it, but actually it's not the real thing. And you're saying you can actually make it simulate or actually do it as an organic No, we're farmer. actually doing it, Roland. That's actually really what's special about it is we have actually developed uh, a very, you know, kind of special proprietary uh, blend of water that uh, we take with our fish and then the uh, processor that we process our uh, materials from. We're actually able to, uh, we, we utilize 
uh, kind of a technique. Uh, we we are, we spin our water, uh, vortex our water, and it's uh, somewhat structured. Um, and so our water is actually able, you know, it, it comes up through a mechanical biological filtration. And we feel that our water is is, is far more uh, organic than um, many people would, would really believe um, and we we have some science behind it. Um, some, uh, so let, let's that... let's let's revisit this for one second because you said something really important, and I think our listeners have to know this. This is really interesting, and and to do this, I'm going to segue back to your roots. I guess your name is Dutch, actually, I believe. Um, right. And uh, I think those roots go back to farming in the Dutch land. So you just mentioned structured water and spinning water. Very very old techniques, as I'm told, and you can read about in literature. Uh, but tell us about that, how you discovered this and why that is in your family and how come. Yep. So when my great-granddad was beginning, you know, we were doing the Dutch method of uh, hydroponic bee sticks in the 70s. Uh, he would uh, spin the water and he would tell me, you know, um, there was some very special things that, that uh, he was trying to gain. And it was an economic situation in, in his mind. Uh, he was wanting to recirculate his water in a different kind of way. And so he didn't want to dump his nutrients each time he had a harvest, which is a kind of a SO, you know, standard operating procedure for many hydro facilities, um, you, you do stuff with your water. Um, he wanted to recirculate it and kind of try to – he wanted to be able to um, gather the nutrition um, and continue to kind of feed the bacteria. So he started way back then spinning the water and uh, told me, you know, listen, this is a special thing that we do, and here's why, you know, we're able to pull out what he felt were – Back then, he was not a scientist. He didn't have microscopes. But he felt like he was able to make superior water with this spinning. Mm-hmm. And so fast forward through many years, I noticed this, uh, you know, technique, um, you know, as I was studying, as I was, you know, getting my education and, and in college, um, was that uh, people were saying that, you know, spinning of water and so forth allowed the plants and consequently because in our body to be able to absorb uh, you know, the nutrients faster and so forth. And what we've actually had is anecdotal, anecdotal, uh, anecdotal uh, evidence of this and that our plants grow faster um, and, you know, and so forth. So we're actually with the, the first stage in our, uh, you know, intellectual property, kind of the uh, IP of our facility uh, is where we actually spend that water and it rises up uh, and you're able to uh, get, start the process of what we consider uh, the uh, nutritious soil water. So let, let's, let's uh, for our listeners, we'll, we'll leave this topic, but if our listeners want to research this farther, this is, goes back to a gentleman named Victor Schoenberger, and, and this is well-studied, right. well-publicized stuff about spinning water, and the older farmers gener- centuries ago used to do this and create this, and that's really known art, and you're bringing it back to use. And I'm, more and more as I get out there in the agricultural world, I'm finding other people talking about it, but it's still on the fringe of 1% of people understand what this is, but it's quite beneficial to all things. But let's go down what it really means. You mentioned like cost parameters, which is really fascinating because, you know, you have roots in farming, you understand farming, you understand how farmers think, but you also understand the math and and the math is everything. Okay. And agriculture is a very, very tough business for people to make money in unless they know exactly what they're doing. Okay. Many people try to farm and they realize the margins are thin. They sell commodities. So you're changing the equation. One, I think what you're saying is we not only grow the food, but we sell the food, right? That's a big delta difference right there. Right. So, um, you know, part of our business model is is, uh, B2B, B2G, and D2C. So business to business, business to government, and direct to consumer. And so um, part of the 
the look of our facilities is, you know, the front-facing portion of our facility, uh, our prototypes, it's, it's yet to be built, and that's kind of where we are with it, is the 24-hour-a-day opportunity to, for people to be able to access fresh available produce from our farms as well as farms regionally uh, in communities where grocery stores won't go. So uh, if I am able to cut out the transportation, the middleman, the, you know, a variety of other places, we're actually able to take high-quality produce to the masses right there in their neighborhood at prices at or below grocery store prices. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. So that, that's, that's by being direct and being very efficient, and, and we know that that's part of the economic equation to really make ag work um, for any inventive. The other part of the equation, which you know too well, is you mentioned cost per square foot to build a facility, cost per plant, cost to produce it. And, you know, can you talk about, I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, uh, but margins and what you're seeing, your margins relative to, to a traditional, say, organic or even conventional farmer, how do you compare when you kind of build your model out? Yeah, so traditionally what we've, we've done a lot of uh, research into what our fellows are doing. I mean, there's some really great studies out there. AgriList and a variety of other people have published uh, a lot of information around how to know what people are spending per square foot to build their facilities, so the CapEx. So our CapEx um, is around uh, 55% cents, uh, will generate a dollar of sales. So, um, you know, based on that, the CapEx is paid off in like 1.2 years, you know, around about in, in that area. We're spending about $75 a square foot. We're finding that our facilities in this what we consider low-tech environment, you don't need all of this technology that we currently have to really do what we need to do to feed the masses. Low-tech, uh, controlled environment ag, next-generation low-tech environment ag, we actually have found that we're able to uh, feed all the people that we need to, um, utilizing humans within the neighborhood. So we have been able to uh, reduce, you know, kind of the capex, uh, as well as uh, the cost of goods sold, um, the economy of scale. We've been able to utilize all of those to our advantage, as well as the opportunity to um, work with uh, governments and uh, places around to be able to get low-cost uh, lands in areas that people traditionally don't want to do business in. That's the brownfield you mentioned, that they're abandoned neighborhood. I mean, all through San Francisco and the Bay Area, they have these people that are trying to put a little urban farm and a little plot of land. It's something similar to that. But how much land are you looking for when you're doing this? Traditionally, Roland, what we're looking for is, is on the smallest, what we call the street-side farms, which are um, the – so agriculture, it has the economy of – you know, it's, it's a volume-based business. So you need to have a certain amount of, uh, of products to be able to sell, to sell every day, and so forth. So on the smallest street-side farms, which are 12,500 plant holes in a, um, you know, mass in our, in our smallest facilities, that is a 200 by 50 lot that we're looking for. So 10,000 square feet, we can actually put our facilities on. You can, when you go to our website, you can actually see kind of what the, what the prototype actually looks like. Um, and so we put our greenhouses, our controlled environment, ag, um, packed facilities, um, all the way through as all the way to the vending machine. We've figured out how to actually push this all into this quarter acre or less of lot. Um, and, you know, for the large distribution farms, for the push-pull for the supply chain management, we needed about an acre for that size facility. And, and in that size facility, we can push upwards of 100,000 plant holes per month 
Okay, oh. the, the 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 jargon might get a little heavy here because uh, <laughs> I know what you're referring to, but uh, let's let's track along here. By the way, this is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Roland Vandermeer, and I'm speaking with Angela Tenbrook, CEO of Foodery Farms. If you have a question, please give us a call at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four nine two nine four two seven eight six six. I want to go back to the point where you were saying, so a quarter acre of land, which is not much, and there's lots of those lots available in many urban environments, um, and, and that's that's quite exciting because you can open up anywhere. Then you mentioned uh, it's kind of a hub-spoke model is what you were referring to. I think you have your street side, and then you have your hub in the middle, which is ideal. Then you can actually supply more product to the different spokes, if you will, right, or other. That's right, customers. the, the push-pull model. Got it. Got it. Okay, so one's a presence in a in a urban environment. Um, so so that's fascinating. And I know you know you talked about you haven't built out the whole full thing, but why don't you give a little bit of background because your credibility. I mean, when I spent time with you, your credibility was unmatched in terms of farming skills and understanding what goes on and the recent experience you had in building out quite an operation, which you sold off and then you launched this model. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So. You know, as I was, I've kind of alluded to during the conversation, uh, as far as we can find, look through our generations, we have always been farmers. Um, and so our family, um, you know, started farming basically uh, as, as many, many millennia ago. Um, but we started farming in greenhouses in the 1970s. And so uh, as you heard me talk about, you know, my great-grandfather and what he was doing, uh, I had low chores at, at five years old, um, which meant that I – uh, was responsible for uh, cleaning those. Anyway, long story short, fast forward, as in many farming families, they don't want everyone to be a farmer, and I was the person they chose to kind of do something else. Did something else, um, had an opportunity to come back to farming uh, and put together what I called my science fair project a few years ago. Um, we went from, at that facility, we went from 5,000 plant holes to about 150,000 when I sold that uh, facility back in uh, seventeen. Um, and that uh, was the first uh, aquaponics facility in the world to obtain SQF Level uh, 3 certification. Um, we were able to scale that facility. And the premise uh, that I was able to take away from that is something that I carry along with me today. What we found was is that people really wanted to work on the farm, but they did not want to invent. And so we found that we hired women within the community. Those women would... They, they, first of all, loved it. Second of all, we could help them with kind of community building. So what we found was is that if we taught a man how to farm in our method, he would only change his family. But if we taught a woman to farm, we would actually be able to change a community. So today on our farms, they are primarily run by women. Uh, those women come from all walks of life. Whenever we put a farm in a community, we have the folks who work on the farm look like the community they work in. So they, we, we have women of all sorts, of all types. We have women what we call re-emerging citizens. Um, and we work with women who have had challenges in their past. Um, they may be re-emerging from a divorce or a, a family issue. They may be re-emerging from uh, being incarcerated or uh, having other uh, addiction issues. We find that these women are in a catch-22. They are really not able to uh, get a job many times that they've been incarcerated. They are not able to get a job because they – and it's kind of a vicious cycle. 
So they're not able to get a job. They're not able to get their kids back. Yet these are the things they need to do. To, they need to have a job to get their kids back. So we have found that these folks, when they have joined our team, have become the most amazing uh, workers, and they and they have actually been able to move within the food chain uh, up up in our into our food chain. And we we uh, we have found that because of that, we just you know hey talk to your friends, and um, so our community we're community building as well as you know really changing uh, the ways. I don't wow. know if I digressed, but no, no, no. That that's it's, it's a wonderful digression, and it's it's not even a digression. It's core and central to who you are and what you're doing. It's again one of the things that impressed me a lot is not only are you growing food where food is needed in a way that people haven't thought about and a model that actually is very unique and profitable, but here you're engaging a community and you're engaging the people that have been almost forgotten and don't have a way back in, and you're you know giving them a chance. And it, it's so funny and, and, and that you actually are playing to so many things that many investors are looking for today. And uh, it's a tribute to the, your model, your thinking, and everything. And very impressive. So I appreciate that segue. And you, you seem to say, you know, well, men aren't performing as well. And in fact, is, you know, I think, you know, the issue with labor and farming is daunting. I mean, there isn't a farmer that is not complaining and, and worried and doesn't know how to make it. So they're, in, they're industrializing it more. They're automating it more. They're me- mechanizing everything. And you're coming with a very simple model that actually grows more robust food at a cheaper cost with a f- workforce that is more dedicated. That's remarkable, actually. Yeah. And you know what we find is, is that, you know, we, we, look, we do working wage, so we don't do pick rate. Um, so we, we call our ladies farm hers. So everybody on the team uh, is a uh, – so if you come to the farm, you'll see that she's wearing a, probably a, a farm her shirt or we refer to each other as farm hers. And it's kind of a badge of honor um, and, you know, to be a farm her. We find that if you can stay 30 for 30 uh, with us, if you'll watch that plant from seed to harvest, we can many times change the lives because people are uh, connected in ways – um, when they see something grow, just as if you had a child and you watch that child grow, you feel connected to it. Uh, same thing happens in the 30-day cycle of, of the plants. Uh, while we wax poetic here, um, there are things that we can do to rehab whole communities who have been forgotten. Bringing food, high-quality food, uh, into food deserts, uh, many people call them food swamps, um, where people have not traditionally been able to access uh, fresh available produce, not even at the Jiffy store. I mean, limited in my community alone. Let me just kind of give you a statistic that's very interesting. My community in Jacksonville is about 1.3 million, 1. Point, you know, you know, three, 3.45 million, you know, that sort of thing. Ten percent of our population is in a food desert. We have 29 food deserts in our city. In that situation, let's talk about the economy, the economics of it. If I'm doing just direct to consumer in one community. In a one-census tract community in, in the city of Jacksonville, that census tract has $500,000 of available dollars per month for people to access produce in the SNAP and EBT program. Wow. That, that's tremendous numbers and, and data there, too. And that repeats all over the country. It's, it's impressive how it would control and the the. And the, the what you face and how you're building this all with the metrics you're, you're citing here, which are really 
um, unique, I think, and very demonstrable as well. When you came out here, though, this is a very wealthy area, okay? Barry is crazy wealthy and crazy smart. What did you find, and why, why would this opportunity be valid here as well? Because we're, we're kind of – we have Whole Foods. We have Molly Stones. We have Draegers. We have you know, crazy markets here too, but all very expensive as we know. But what do you think when you come out here? Well, you know, Roland, I, we have Burlingame. So in Burlingame, you have, you, know, you, have this, you have really nice places – then you have places where people don't have access to food. You know, so there are places in, in, your, in your community where people are, are without the necessities. Their, their Jiffy store doesn't even offer the food that they need to, you know, um, to access, to feed their family. And the other thing was the food cost. You know, it was just, I was astonished. The other thing is, is that the... Um, the quality of the food, although you have farmers growing, you know, you're very close to where a lot of our, what we, you know, our bread basket of America, people don't have access to the vegetables that maybe other folks, such as yourself and others, would be able to access because you have, you know, you have the means to buy those things. The other thing that I noticed was that there are a lot of people interested in this. They're trying to uh, do community gardens. And community gardens, I have to tell you, I, I love them. I think they're amazing tools to teach young people where food comes from. But you really need a lot of food to feed a family. And I don't really think that people understand the amount of food that is needed to feed a family. And there are people who are hungry. I mean, your homelessness problem in San Francisco and, uh, you know, and talking to some of the people that you and I connected with even, you know, everyone recognizes there's a problem, and the the basics of of human uh, kind are not being um, addressed. You know, and food is one of those basics. So, so that that's that's important, and and I'm going to segue for a second because. You know, one thing is getting getting the food. Nothing is knowing what to do with it, which is another problem. And in fact, our our next guest, uh, the next hour, will talk about this. This is a company that actually trains people and teaches people how to use food and develop skills and kind of modify behavior because many people are still stuck. Like, what do I do with that zucchini? You know, <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> Squash. I don't know. Yeah, lettuce, iceberg lettuce. That's a good one. I understand that. And throw a tomato on it. But uh, do you find that to be an issue in your in your model? Actually, you know, Roland, that's a very interesting point. So in our community, I, I have to kind of brag on our community a little bit, where our farm is located. So when we came into the community, it was a little bit, there was some challenges. Um, uh, we had some issues, and I was a little, I mean, I didn't come before daylight, um, to be honest with you, and then, you know, a normal farmer would come there uh, sometimes before daylight to do some things. We used to not, we have actually today, we are able to uh, access our farm 24 hours a day, without fear of, um, you know, of, of going off. But um, what we've also done is, is we've brought in food trucks because there isn't a grocery store or a place to eat near where our farm is located. And so um, we've brought in the food trucks, and the chefs have taken it upon themselves to teach the people in the community how to eat. We had a chef two weeks ago who came in and said, hey, look, I know you guys all think that romaine lettuce is only to be eaten raw. Let me show you this. And he sauteed some lettuce with some uh, steak cuts from another uh, a meat producer in the community, and he said, look, you can do this. This is how you can cook it. If you think it's, you know, you don't really like the way it tastes, and 
let's try this and see how this tastes. The other thing they've been showing them is how to use the herbs to make the flavor taste better, more palatable. And that's, you know, many times people are, they don't care for tomatoes or they don't care for even, you know, really good common food. Now, unless the stuff that we grow that's, you know, like I have an English breakfast radish. Um, you know, what do you do with that? Um, you know, so what do you do with some basic foods that are, you've always eaten traditionally raw? Well, here's a new idea. So we've brought in food trucks, which is, you know, it's kind of a fun thing for people in the community. And um, we actually have people in the community ask, when's the next food truck coming around? Uh, so-and-so chef taught me how to cook that Swiss chard. And so, you know, it's been really interesting teaching people how to do something different. Wow. Well, that, that is phenomenal, and I really appreciate that because uh, that's a big part of the puzzle. I know people like Jamie Oliver are out there teaching people, and there are other, and you'll hear the next guest that says teaching people, but this is really important when you can do it and give recipes. And I know some, you know, food co-ops do the same thing, pass the recipe with what the, with the, with the harvest is that week. So right now, I'd like to take a short break. I'm Roland Vandermeer, and my guest this hour is Angela Tenbrook of CEO of Foodery Farms. Stay with us as we continue our conversation about growing food in your local community and how she does it and breaking the paradigm here. Right after the break, we'll be back. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome back to Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Roland Vandermeer, and my guest this hour is Angela Tenbrook, CEO of Foodery Farms. When we left off, we were starting to talk about how it is to grow food in your neighborhood. Actually, how Angela has a model to grow food in your neighborhood in suburban and suburban urban food deserts, and the comprehensive model she's created. It's quite fascinating. Angela, I have lots of follow-on questions for you because I, I just feel that you were just you know, touching the tip of the iceberg here. So, so there's a few things that we haven't, we've kind of glossed over. So one, you have a really cool model, but we really haven't talked about how you're doing this. And you mentioned aquaponics, which is a frightening word for a lot of farmers and people who've tried investing in it and people who have tried it actually, because there are all sorts of challenges. First of all, how do you keep the water clean? How do you, what do you do with the fish and all those things? And it doesn't really scale the model. And, and there's lots of questions in people's minds about that. And our listeners, if they don't know that this has been challenges, you know, for, for generations in this industry. So can you tell us a little about that and why your approach is unique and different here. Right. So one of the things that I think most people, you know, have the misunderstanding is, is and aquaponics is much like hydroponics has been around for many, 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 many years. Um, I mean, aquaponics we can find all the way back to the Mayans. So anyway, um, you know, one of the things that's most important about the manner in which we design and build our facilities has to do with food safety. Um, many times people think of aquaponics as fish swimming below the plants, and the USDA really doesn't allow for you to do that. That is not really an appropriate method um, and manner in which to operate your facility. And on the commercial scale, you, you really must be mindful of following the rules as everyone else has followed. Um, you know, our fellow farmers, you know, hydro, farm grow, you know, ground grown, whatever. In this day and age in which we have really uh, severe food safety issues, we really have to be concerned with that. So we have designed um, our facility to, you know, the manner in which we grow has very rigid requirements, um, and, you know, we run our facility with what we call the Red Book. So 
that means that when you enter our facility, you, you know, have the normal biosecurity things such as, you know, you walk through water, you uh, you walk across, uh, you know, what we will, for the listeners, we'll call them sticky mats. Uh, we have, you know, um, you know, air blowing across your clothes so you don't bring in, uh, you know, pests and such, as well as the um, manner in which you walk through our facilities. But what's really special about aquaponics is, is that it's really an environment and a biome that's kind of different than, you know, in the chemical formula of hydroponics, you know, you grow a specific, uh, you know, TDS, ECs, you have a whole variety of, of stuff going on um, that you monitor and watch, um, and you're developing for your developing product. Whereas in aquaponics, it's more of a symbiotic relationship between the plants and the fish, whereas the plants are able to uptake the nutrients that the fish really do not need to come back to them. We recirculate our water in our facilities, and, you know, when we were, we've built this, I've built this, you know, now more than a couple acres uh, worth of aquaponics commercially, and what we have found is, is that you really have to maintain this environment that because we don't use pesticides and herbicides and such, that it's very um, sterile but not sterile. Uh, so uh, the environment is much like you would be in a commercial production facility, yet uh, it's we want the neighbors to come in and see what we're doing. So I think the thing that's most important about, you know, the farms in which we're putting in communities isn't that people would say, oh, that's the farm down the road. Oh, I don't know what happens there, but I... I want them to say, that's my community's farm, that's the foodery farm, that's so-and-so uh, sister that runs that farm down the road. And you know what? You can get our vegetables, her, her vegetables there 24 hours a day at the uh, Innovative Market. I don't know if that answered your question, Roland, but that's... No, it, it, it does, it does. But um, so, so describe this. So you have fish swimming around doing their right. business, okay? What are they being fed when they're swimming around? So our fish are fed a really high-quality diet, high in protein. Um, you know, our fish are vegetarian, so we many times people think you can only have tilapia in an aquaponics facility. We've actually seen recently where there are other commercial aquaponics farms who are growing salmon. Uh, you know, in our facilities we grow koi, goldfish. Uh, we've grown uh, other tropical uh, fish, uh, brim, stump knockers. A variety of fish can be grown in the aquaponics facility. So we have fish in fish tanks much like you would have in a what we consider tank culture. We do a low stocking density so that our fish um, is, are maintained with uh, kind of good, good uh, husbandry and good, good practices. Huh. From there, it goes into our, uh, you know, special uh, bioreactor, as we refer to it there at our farm, in which, you know, the structured water and the irritational vortexes are, are occurring and a variety of other things. It rises up there and goes through a series of mechanical filtrations. It goes into the grow beds. We do grow beds a little differently. My friends who are in NFT love them, but for what we're trying to do, we're doing deep water culture beds. And there's a real specific reason. Because we're doing the lower tech um, operation here, the plant-to-tip ratio, which is, you know, many farmers out there who hear this conversation know that plant-to-tip ratio, plant-tip to roof ratio really matters. So if you're doing these, uh, you know, environments, no matter where we put our farms, they have to be able to produce food 365 days of the year, no matter what. I mean, we've built a farm in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, they're right there at Canada, in Delaware, and down here in the south. 
um, our farms need to be able to produce no matter what. So we have this, you know, this facility that grows. So the water is, you know, from our fish. It goes to the bioreactor. It, it goes underneath the plants. From there, it returns to the sump in which we collect, you know, data with our telemetry and uh, a variety of, of other kind of uh, waypoints or parameters that we're looking for to maintain. Wow. Okay. All right. So, so that's a lot of data and really interesting because what, what you're saying is, you know, you're doing things slightly differently, but everybody can relate to it who's been in the agriculture or aquaponics business as well. And your metrics are provable right now, demonstrable, which is great. So, so, okay, you've kind of built this model and you mentioned goldfish and koi. I mean, what do you do with these fish? I mean, I know eventually you have to, people eat the tilapia. I get that. But what do you do? Sell your fish? Actually, an interesting thing. So in a street-side market, and we have to think of, you know, okay, a $5 fish versus, versus a $50 fish. As a, the fish, the arcoi and uh, tilapia are grown in a really nice environment for them to grow. They grow a little faster, and they are not out in the sunlight. So they don't, they don't necessarily get bleached as they would if they were in a commercial pond outside. So our fish are uh, our, our, our ornamental fish, or are they pond fish that people would like to put into their uh, koi ponds and a variety of other things. We are actually able to gain more money from those fish when we sell them than we are the tilapia. Tilapia yeah. goes for around uh, anywhere from, depending upon your market. I'm here in a large seafood market, so you know I can generally get five to seven dollars to eight dollars for my tilapia, a whole fish sold you know on ice. Um, whereas I can sell a live koi, you know, for upwards of 50. If I can get a really nice one, I can sell them up for a couple hundred dollars. So you so, go in the pet store business as well. Um, I'm right. only kidding. Um, but uh, that's fantastic. We can sell it to the PetSmart group around, you know. Exactly, exactly. Well, that, that's really innovative and clever. So so this environment, you say the fish environment is really healthy. So your, your water is recirculating. You're not really adding anything to the water, so to speak, for the plants to grow. The fish do that part. But you are adding to feed for the fish to eat, right? That's the one that's ingredient right. you have to add to your system, I think. That's right. We do add. We, we do a really high-quality feed. Um, and and we use, you know, scattering, uh, you know, a variety of, of commercial feeds that are we try to, you know, we are always uh, looking around for the best feed for our fish. We do a floating uh, fish feed, so we, we like uh, for our fish to have a certain pellet size. And, a ver- you know, we want our fish to have the highest quality diet that they can get for maximum growth. And is that really um, the only additive you have in the whole system? Yep, that would be one of, you know, for the most part, that's the major additive that we have in our whole system. And the, the water use, it's recycled and all that stuff, but how much loss... Do you have of water, and, and if you had compared it to a normal growing facility? Yeah, already? so that's a really interesting question that I am always asked, you know, the ground-grown guy versus the, you know, what I'm doing. Right. Um, and I think that the interesting, I would say to you that, Roland, I use about 1% of the water um, on the plant's harvest uh, life yeah. as opposed to, um, you know, my fellows who are growing in the ground. Um, and that's, you know... For instance, in our facility here that we're working, um, we actually have about you know eight to ten thousand gallons, and we do we do it on the hour. So we have a certain amount of um, water that we're pushing through. You know, always recirculating, always 
moving that water uh, through there. And what we are trying to do is, is we are always trying to uh, minimize our water use uh, for runoff and a variety of other things. I mean, every farmer I know is trying to, you know, reduce our water. But what's special about our place, Roland, is that we're actually able to reduce all varieties of water usage because of the manner in which we grow. So we have this recirculating water system that we are actually, um, we use a fraction to grow, you know, this crop of plants that we grow than our traditional growing. So, for instance, if I have a 30,000-gallon uh, aquaponic system, uh, that that would grow a crop of about an, uh, an acre of food, uh, recirculating that throughout the system, you know, Whereas my fellow farmers on a one-acre field, probably the life of that plant, he's going to produce, you know, uh, possibly, you know, use 30,000 gallons in a week. Um, so we're using for the whole life cycle of our plants. You know, that's where we're always recirculating. We only add maybe 1% to 5% uh, of water per week um, for to make up for transpiration and a variety of uh, other environmental factors because you are in the controlled environment facility, you have to, you know, you're going to have kind of the environment that happens out in the open, we capture. Um, so we're able to, you know, our plants are able to breathe and a variety of, of things such as that. Okay. So we, we use a fraction, a percentage of the water of our fellows. Yeah, I, I got that. So so we're, we're going to do one input, nominal water input, labor costs reduced, plant, you know, sell prices up there. Um, energy, energy is a component we haven't talked about. So relatively. Can you kind of talk about energy or parameters or something you can give us to kind of gauge how much energy you use? Because a lot of greenhouses do need a lot of energy to control temperature, to control either cooling or heating, all those things. But can you tell me, and you have pumping systems going on here as well. Right, right. So I always smile when people ask me about energy because that is where I really feel like we are, we are you know, outpacing everyone in a lot of ways is because we do use solar um, energy to power the majority of our facilities. Um, we, as part of the team that I have, you know, we've developed here, uh, that, you know, our partner here is uh, in the PV and uh, LED space. So everything on our farm, from the uh, lights that we use to the power, uh, our pumps are, are DC so they can run off solar. Uh, in our city, we're required to do uh, on tie, so we have to be on the grid. But we can run our solar power uh, during the day so that we get, like, a net zero uh, energy use. We as well have built our coolers um, with using total solar power uh, coolers. So we, we have tried to reduce our energy footprint, our carbon footprint, to as low as we can get by utilizing solar power and the other, um, you know, sustainable energy uh, opportunities. So the other I'm thing gonna, that I I'm going to ask you that for a second. I want to really uh, dive into that a little more because really I'm helping the listener kind of build an economic model and understand where you're coming from because it's so well put together. But this is Bay Area Ventures on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Roland Vandermeer, and speaking with Angela Tenbrook from a CEO of Foodery Farms. So um, you have solar, yeah, which mitigates. So how much input do you take off the grid? I imagine nighttime something has to run those pumps, but do you have battery storage or are you pulling off the grid at that point? We are pulling off the grid at that point. In the future, okay. um, our, our goal is to go uh, with a small battery grid. Um, but because we will be running uh, our whole facility, the actual building that we built in the front uh, that has the uh, innovative Farm and Go uh, market, yeah. And the uh, pack house area is actually enough square footage to power our whole facility and run on grid 
empower our neighbors a bit so that we can actually reduce our energy costs to zero. Wow. So, so, so that means, um, I mean, let, let's talk about your, your energy use. I mean, we make it sound so high. As I remember, your pumping solutions, these motors, are, are not the biggest nor the biggest pumps in the world. You're, you're just really doing low flow rate stuff. So this is yeah, not that's a big – that's another thing we have to mention. Yeah, I, 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 I did not say what was so special about as well com- continuing on about the specialness of the flow of the water. So the flow of the water runs through hydraulic head and gravity push through our facility. So the only place where we actually pump water is back to our fish tanks, as well as the only other motor that I'm using inside of the actual grow operation besides my fans and such is a blower for the oxygenation for my uh, plants to have um, oxygen at the roots because we know that that allows the roots the permeability to be able to uh, absorb nutrients and so forth. Um, And so we actually use downhill flow, so hydraulic head, uh, at a certain PSI, we are moving our water through the facility, and we're able to return it without an, a motor as per se uh, at all. Wow. So we are okay. actually able to uh, move our water with uh, gravity and using a series of you know physics principles and engineering. Yeah, so, so you're not using a ton of energy anyway. Are you doing any lighting, though? We actually don't use lighting. Um, we Because okay. of the uh, greenhouse design in which we build, uh, we haven't used lighting. Now, our facilities that have been up in the Northeast, we have seen that they have like they have tried to use a little lighting, but even still, you change your varietals and you're able to you know continue your growth. There, are, there are low light, um, you know, day neutral, a variety of other things that you can, you know, uh, you can acquire seed wise. Which takes me to an interesting thing as well is that we're trying to innovate on indoor seeds. So what can you grow inside of greenhouses? Right, right. Well, you mentioned you're growing 30-odd products in, in this environment, which is very unique as well. And people don't understand how, how challenged most people are to have those kind of varietals going. Right. You have to, you know, you have to kind of, you have to have a plant scientist on your team and someone who understands farming, who speaks farmer, to um, really get the understanding of you can't grow a certain variety of uh, romaines you know, year-round, that's just not possible. Right. Um, you have to, you know, change your varietals and, you know, what you grow so that you're always able to produce food for your clients. Um, and, and hence your recipes that uh, you're going to make with the food every every season kind of thing. That's right. Um, that's right. So, so let, let's people... dive into something else because it's something we, we touched on and you keep on kind of going over it, but this idea, this innovative way to sell food, you know, street side in these urban infill environments, um, it, it's important because, you know, I go to a little uh, deli or grocery store, we call them. Um, it's really a soda store with some chips in it. And that's my food desert right there. And there's nothing live in that whole store. And they might have an apple or a banana, you know, or an orange in there, but they don't really have anything else. So you're trying to address that market, that opportunity and get real food to people. And also, it sounds like sell other products that were are like-minded, like fresh eggs and fresh whatever there could be. Is that not correct? That's right. So in the what you've heard referred to me, re, me referred to as the farm and go, is yeah. our answer to fresh available produce, uh, 365 days of the year, 24 hours a day. Seven could I liken that? I mean, I'd like to. Sorry, cutting you off there. Um, I'd liken that to. There's a really neat little farm here in the Bay Area in Bolinas, and and you come up there, you drive up, and there's this little stand. 
and you shop what you want, and then you, it's an honor system, and you pay. You weigh your stuff, and you pay, and you go. And this farmer is amazing, and he literally has two employees, same thing, very loyal, and he, he works very normal hours, and he has a fantastic little business. But he's able to – and it's not even such a premium. He's a discount to all the stores, of course, but it's also a very wealthy market, so he can do that. I thought that was an anomaly, and you're telling me you have a similar model, and you can make it work. Right, exactly. And our model's a little different. Uh, it's not a um, kind of honor system. I mean, you know, I'm, every people everywhere are honorable. Um, but we do have to have, you know, some understanding about what people are purchasing. And, um, you know, we are, our Farm and Go allows us to be able to do that. So as well, people want to be able to use their uh, credit card and a variety of other payment methods, um, PayPal and other things. Our machines actually will allow you to do that. So you're able to come up. Um, to this access, I would uh, you can envision it kind of a big iPad screen, and you will touch the screen um, and uh, be able to access either one fresh available salad or a family size amount of salads. Uh, you know that may have tomatoes and onions and a variety those kinds of things, as well as a possibility of uh, milk and cheese and and bread from the community. Um, we've been working to see we have an opportunity for 200 SKUs inside of this uh, marketplace that we're doing. So the person walks up to it. They're not really able to access it. There's not a cash exchange. Um, This is, you know, off hours uh, or during hours. If they don't want to come inside the farm, um, they could access their vegetables out there. We've actually been working with, talking to a guy in the Bay Area who has this really interesting uh, app on the phone where you're able to um, access the vegetables, kind of know what's happening before you get there. And, you know, there's some movement. We've been talking with him about being able to queue up your order so that all you do is you get a, like a QR code or whatever, and you would come and, and, you know, show that before the screen, kind of get in a code, and you would actually be able to access your, you know, your vegetables. So it's kind of, if I had to visualize, it's kind of like a food locker, you know, that's ready and waiting. It's like a food locker. That's right. Right, right. It'll open up and release with the app, and, and you can pay your money, and it opens up for you, and there you go. It's all yours. And then I guess the people working the farm restock it for the next client, and, and, and there are hundreds of them, I take it, available yeah, on one wall front, right? That's right, and it's a 200 SKU. Um, and it actually, you would be surprised at how many uh, products we're able to get inside of these, these machines. Um, I mean, we're, you're able to get gallons of milk. So it's really interesting, um, an idea that we've we've come across, and we you know been partnering with uh, folks to be able to do this. You know, we're partnering with farmers in our community. You may say to me, "Well, she's going to try to run out farmers." That's not the plan at all. The plan is actually to collaborate. We must start collaborating in order for us to be able to feed you know the future world population. And it it is a must that farmers collaborate in order to make sure that we have the diversification of products that we need to be able to feed the masses. We can no longer think of just growing one or two products um, and thinking that, you know, that's how we're going to be able to feed the world. It is, in fact, not. You know, with the fact that many people in the world are becoming more affluent and able to access uh, vegetables, it puts a pressure on the rest of the ecosystem for us to be able to, uh, you know, feed people who are the communities who are becoming more affluent. 
Well, Angela, you've done an amazing job here and really explaining the model that you've done. And I think it's a breakthrough paradigm. Having spent uh, almost 10 years now looking at agricultural plays, this is quite unique and it's quite comprehensive. And yet you've simplified it to the point where the economics work. And, and that's fantastic. And I, hats off to you. And our listeners should appreciate how much intelligence and work and thoughtfulness this has taken to innovate here. Uh, so low-cost food, serving the community, engaging the community to help work and, and rejuvenate themselves, okay, if you will, and, and, a, and a model that is just so stands out to me in everything I've seen so far. So I really appreciate all the work and effort. I know it's not been an easy journey, but uh, it seems like it's been a, a good journey for you as well. Yes, uh, you know, when I was, my education, you know, that they wanted me to be in was in medicine. And so my now my motto is, you you pay me now as the farmer, you pay the doctor later as your as your uh, caretaker in the future. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, having an education, we didn't go through your background about that, but that's actually been helpful because, in fact, you are helping heal people and you are taking, serving the community, and that that's a, that's a big tribute to you. Okay, a lot of effort there. Um, I really feel that, you know, um, how do people reach you, by the way? Uh, Foodery Farms online, is that the best way to do that? Yeah, they can reach us at uh, www.foodoryfarms.farm or .com, as well as they can, uh, you know, uh, Angela at foodoryfarms.farm. They can call us at the farm. Um, They can come by and see us. Uh, (laughs) We are looking to, uh, you know, know, to move forward very rapidly. Uh, We are looking for strategic partners to help us, you know, go into these markets and to uh, help us to feed the masses in the future. Okay. All right. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time here, and I've been speaking this hour with Angela Tenbrook from Foodery Farms. Angela, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Roland. We really appreciate the opportunity to tell our story. You're welcome. And our listeners will join in and go to your website or email you or look it up online, and I hope to see you out there. Uh, just ahead, I'll speak with uh, with uh, Dave Amin from Maj Health, a digital food and nutrition company. I'm Roland Vandermeer, and you're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures, powered by the Wharton School. Here again, Roland Vandermeer. Welcome back to Series XM, Bay Area Ventures, live from the campus of Wharton in San Francisco. I'm your host, Roland Vandermeer. In today's show, we're talking about money that matters, CEOs and investors that are making the difference. If you have any questions, please give us a call, 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Today, I'm joined now by with Dave Amin from Maj Health. He is the COO and CHO, which we'll explain in a second. Um, thanks for joining me here today, Dave. Thank you very much, Roland. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's start out with what CHO means. So CHO stands for Chief Health Officer. Uh, we at Monge wear many hats, and uh, I wear two titles. So I'm a physician, and I'm essentially the chief clinical expert at Monge Health. Ah, okay. So, so can you give us before I ask what you know your background because it's I remember it's fascinating. Is is give us a little overview of Maj Health and get let our audience know what Maj Health does and what it's really about. Certainly, in two minutes or less. By the way, two minutes or less. Maj Health uh, is a is a, a very forward thinking uh, entrepreneurial venture uh, with a singular mission, which is to reverse the damaging effects of obesity in our population, which has taken a, a kind of a, a, a a death grip on on our population, 
and, and also the damaging effects of obesity, which we refer to as metabolic syndrome. And so this is the singular mission of the company, and uh, the focus is on actually changing uh, a person's relationship to both uh, food and movement. Wow. Okay. So, so there's many systemic reasons this whole industry is evolving, but it's also right. systemic because of the environmental issues that are out there as well. So let's talk about your, a little bit about your background. You're chief health officer, chief operating officer here. I know you have an eclectic background, and it, you ended up here kind of a really interesting route. Want to just go through that a little bit? Sure. Uh, so uh, way back when, I was an engineer in the Air Force uh, for about eight years working on satellite communication systems. I quickly realized I had more of an affinity for people in the life sciences, and I took off for medical school, uh, University of Southern California. I trained in emergency medicine. Uh, along the way, I developed a, a really deep affinity for community health uh, and for taking care of uh, folks uh, in, a, in a primary care type setting. The emergency department became a, a kind of a, a microcosm of everything that was wrong with healthcare. And increasingly, the farther I advanced in my career, I realized that we, we had to start rethinking how we were delivering primary care so that I wasn't seeing these things uh, to such a degree in the emergency department. Uh, Becoming increasingly administrative and with my engineering background, tinkering with care delivery and thinking about where healthcare needed to go, uh, I took some time off a few years ago uh, to go to uh, MIT Sloan, the other business school, perhaps, wow. and uh, emerged from that experience uh, determined to help redesign uh, primary care with a focus on wellness, prevention, and actually capturing the rising risk population. It's wonderful to take care of people when they're ill, uh, but it's, it's truly uh, mission-related and a passion of mine to prevent them from becoming ill. Fantastic. Okay. And that, that's an amazing background. And so engineer to doctor to businessman and back to helping people um, get better. Okay. So, so let's, let's walk through Maj a little bit. And Maj is a unique model. I happen to know uh, Adam DeVito, the CEO. Yes. Who is, and, and by all, I'm actually a small investor in this company, a little bit of, because I found it so fascinating what they're doing. So I got to know the company a little bit over the past year. Um, so t tell us a little bit about what makes Maj special and how it works its program because it's, it's unique and I think it's, it's uh, emerging right now. Right. Uh, Monch Health has been on, and what drew me into the company essentially uh, about about 12 months ago uh, was the vision that Monch Health had laid out several years ago, which was really redefining the way people approach what they eat and how they move. Um, we don't refer to it as diet and exercise, which are generally kind of dirty words for people, uh, but it's really about changing their relationship and, and in a larger extent, changing their behavior around that relationship. And what differ you know what differentiates Monj Health from the approach they've taken is they've they've taken a very uh, consumer driven approach to something that actually has a highly clinical application. Uh, and, and that's where I stepped in. I mean Monj started early on uh, developing a platform that allows people to actually create sort of a self mastery of of what they eat every day and and how they think about what they're eating in a very in a very fun and lighthearted and and joyful way. It's it's not focused on a carrot and stick approach, which is I do this, I get this. Uh, it's it's much more focused on the science of intrinsic motivation and allowing people to develop a mastery over themselves. Uh, it's focused on the science of uh, B.J. Uh, Fogg's small steps, uh, behavior change, kind of mastering tiny habits in your everyday life. Uh, it's focused on autonomy, becoming curious about the world around you. They, they, they've sort of taken the approach that 
that if you're prescribed something, which is what we physicians do on a daily basis, and we all know how well that works. People don't finish their prescriptions. They don't show up for their appointments. But if you can get people curious about things that are good for them and allow them to, to, to gain something from that encounter, uh, not necessarily lose anything, uh, that, that you've really moved them pretty far along the journey to, to creating sustainable behavior change, which is what Lodge is all about. At the end of the day, sustainable behavior, behavior change around um, food was the starting point. Uh, Monge Health has added movement to that equation with the acquisition of a company called iTrim, which was a very successful model for folks that were uh, looking to, to lose weight. Uh, taking the best of what iTrim had, taking the best of what ex- it currently existed with the nutrition platform and merging those into what is today a digitally delivered, very uh, coach, uh, live uh, health coach enhanced model for behavior change. Okay. So, so that, that's, that's, a, that's a lot right there. And, and it sounds interesting because you're, now you're taking food, things you eat every day. You're actually mindfulness as I've comes to mind when you talk this way. It's a Correct. mindful Absolutely about right. how you approach food, which is new for most people because most people will grab something like myself. You know, I'm, a, I'm addicted to chocolate chip cookies and I just eat three before I realize I've eaten three, right. you know, kind of thing. And it's not good for the sugar for my, my whole health, right? But that that's the mindfulness of how we eat and what we eat, okay? Live food, potentially. And Correct. Our guest before, by the way, was talking about growing real live food and how to put that to work. So it's really fascinating you're here now. And, and teaching skills, I remember that. You have teaching skills, too. So teaching cooking skills, teaching cutting skills, teaching all these things in, in a very systematic way that's enjoyable, right? That, that's completely correct. Uh, mindfulness is a big word, and most of us, myself included, probably don't go through the day with enough mindfulness around what either what we're doing or what we're eating. Uh, and, a, and a major focus, focus of this is to, is to start teaching people uh, or allowing them to self-explore and figure out what works for them. And about They're going to gain skills. They're going to gain mastery over themselves. They're going to perhaps even gain some happiness in what they're doing because they're experimenting and they're, they're finding joy in, in things that otherwise we, we, we wouldn't consider. Uh, for example, what they're eating on a daily basis. And, and with that becomes, uh, comes a mindfulness associated with what we're doing. Right. I mean, it movie comes to mind, uh, was it with Michael Pollan speaking and it was, uh, it was looking at the food system and the diets that we all face right now. And this was a family they were tracking. And I remember that distinctly in the truck and they're talking, we can't afford this good food. We can't afford healthy food is a big thing. And that's why, why the prior guest was here. It's becoming more affordable, but it was a big dilemma. And he said, and we could never afford the diabetes medication that my husband's on because of that, we can't afford good food. And it was quite the other way around. I was stunned at the hypocrisy of that or the irony of that. Exactly. And, and Monge is also on a bit of a mission and, and has set out to prove that that's a fallacy. It's sort of an urban myth that it that it's 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 cheaper to eat unhealthfully than it is to eat healthfully. And and the entire premise behind the nutrition platform that Monge has developed is is that it's it's not. If if you sit down and look at the way they have fashioned we I say they, it's we now that I've been on the team for for an entire year now, the way we fashion this is that, is that the the blueprints to the meals, and it's not recipes, it's not prescriptive by any stretch of the imagination. It's actually teaching people how to use common things around the house, uh, combine them in a way that's flavorful, that's that's filling, 
that achieves that level of satiety, uh, but in a very plant-based way with small amounts of proteins. You don't need to eat a box of donuts to feel good or, or full or satisfied. You can actually do the same thing with a, a, a majority of a plant-based diet, uh, but wrapped around big flavors and using naturally occur- occurring glutamates uh, that trigger satiety. Uh, it becomes a different world for folks when they engage in it, and, and it's, it's been wildly popular. But you're not vegetarian advocates. You're not saying that. That's just, that's just, you're just adding that to the color here. Exactly. It's more of a Mediterranean-style diet. Um, uh, with, a, with, with A blue zone a, diet. A blue zone diet. That's exactly it. Small amounts of protein um, migrating to more of a plant-based diet. Um, and I remember sulfur-based foods are really good in the blue zone diet. These are the regions around the world for our audience that actually have the greatest longevity because they eat this really wonderful diet. They also probably have a good lifestyle with that too. Right. And it's exactly true. So the diet's a big part of it, and then we could talk about blue zones for probably another show. But uh, but there's a big social connectivity piece attached to that, and, yeah. uh, and is probably a good segue into uh, where that intersects with the work that Monge Health is doing. And that's the consulting uh, kind of model, the coaches and stuff like that? What is that about? So it's definitely the coaches that are diving in, but it's also more about the social connectivity with family, friends, peers, colleagues, even other folks that are or that are using the Monge Health application and are engaged in the program. We, we recognize that social connectivity is everything. If, if, you, if we talk blue zones, we can talk about the deep social connections that, that bind those populations or bring them together. Nothing is more social than food. We recognize that. That's where family gatherings occur. That's where ideas are exchanged. When we go to perhaps do business, we meet over lunch or we meet over dinner. Uh, we recognize that there's a big social influence to this, and people that are socially connected um, um, be- become happier. Uh, and when they become happier, they want to do good things uh, for themselves and the folks around them. We also recognize that this has a very clinical side of it. Uh, we know from the medical community that it doesn't matter w- what behavior you're trying to change. If we are taking people in a prescriptive way, which is largely what medicine has done, and told them what to do, and then sent them off into an environment that has led to this behavior, uh, or habit, that's unhelpful. And so creating a social structure for somebody uh, that's positive and supportive is is embedded in what Monch Health is doing. And, and I remember that because um, I think most people, even with debilitating diseases, will not follow up. And I don't know if it's most, but 60% or 40%, somewhere around that, will not take the medicine after they feel just a little bit better will stop, even though it's life-threatening not to take it. Correct. The compliance issue is massive because there's no support structure behind there's it. There's no support structure. And so we, you know, I mean, in the wider world of medicine, we would enlist family, friends, uh, peer support. Peer support's become a really common topic. I would say 10 years ago, nobody talked much about peer support. And now when we're dealing with behavioral health, uh, we talk a lot about peer support and engaging the folks that are around you. And and the way the Monch Health platform is designed in in terms of obesity management, and now we're tackling type 2 diabetes and we're tackling hypertension, we're we're really focused on building connections between either people going through the program or in addition to that, family, friends, and sharing uh, successes uh, with your what we call your support squad, so that you're getting and you're you're getting that positive affirmation, and you're building a network um, that you can rely on. Okay, all right. Well, this is Barry Ventures on Business Radio Sirius XM. 132. I'm your host, Roland Vandermeer, and I'm here joining my, the studio with my guest, Dave Amin. He is from Maj Health and the CHO, Chief Health Officer and COO. If you have any questions, please give us a call at 1-84-WHARTON or 1-84-942-7866. If 
Dave, let's let's talk about the model a little bit because our guests here they kind of care about the business model too and how you're making this all work because it, it sounds fascinating. So you have programming, okay? It sounds like for we teaching do. skills and health and food and cooking and then movement, okay? As you say, great. Correct. So how how is Maj reaching this audience? Because that's a really painful reach to just go out there and say, hey, our application's available. We're on Apple Store, and you can just go and download it, and there you go. Correct. So, so we have taken, um, uh, I think, what may be perceived as a slightly contrarian view uh, to how we're approaching the marketplace. And, and to gain the widest reach possible, we're not a direct-to-consumer offering. Uh, we have tackled the clinical space head-on uh, in order to reach the most people and do the most good. Um, we have uh, a business model that is focused, number one, on the clinical space. So uh, the intention is that this is a clinically rigorous 52-week program designed to live in a physician's office, facilitated by a health coach, which may uh, be a registered dietitian uh, in a network that we built out or somebody that we can specially train for the practice. We've taken the approach that, and, and, and this is just a truism in, in, in medicine in general, that uh, there are lots of good ideas and everybody can agree on something that's good to do. There's not a lot of money to pay for it, regrettably. And margins tend to be low. And so reimbursements become very important uh, in, in the medical space or in the clinical space. And so we've taken a, a really hard look at what clinical reimbursements are available for preventive care. And we've actually created the business model for our clinical partners and, and in consultation with them. We've been working on that for the past uh, 10 to 12 months right now. And the clinical partners that we have worked on ha have been uh, um, just wildly happy with, with the partnership that we've created with them. And uh, we have actually built a set of reimbursements around what we're doing that they can leverage, and we participate in uh, the the work that they're doing and the reimbursements that they're able to to garner uh, with a revenue share. Uh, and that's one model, and it's a business model that works for the clinical space. We recognize that healthcare uh, is multi-channeled. Uh, people will will uh, get healthcare from a clinical setting. Employers are diving into the game, and obviously the payers. Uh, are yet one more channel. Uh, the second business model uh, we have uh, created in conjunction um, with a very large payer that we're working with is a milestone arrangement where we actually are at risk for patient engagement or on the hook for patient engagement and for achieving certain clinical targets. And uh, this makes sense from a payer standpoint uh, because our fees will obviously come directly from the payer, uh, split up over a series of milestones, which we would achieve over a 52-week period. And it begs the question that why would a commercial insurance company go out and pay uh, a reasonably large sum of money, 1000 or $1,500 for a program with no co-payment, no out-of-pocket, for their members, and the answer is that uh, if if and when we're successful at achieving those clinical targets, uh, the return on investment for them is 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 ten to twenty fold. Uh, people come off medications. Ten to twenty fold. Medication de-escalation itself <laughs> can drive that number through the roof. Wow. Um, reducing emergency department visits, reducing hospitalizations, um, reducing all of the negative and expensive effects of metabolic syndrome, which comes uh, largely from obesity. Are are they really on your side though? Don't they like those revenues? because they're not paying for them anyway? Uh, so, Roland, I would have 
if you had asked me that question 15 years ago, <laughs> I would have said you're correct. Uh, there's been uh, a real shift in in healthcare and in the marketplace, and it's across all sectors. and And there are a number of pressures that are, that have been driving that. Uh, I would say first and foremost, there's pressure coming out of uh, Washington D.C. and the Centers for uh, Medicare and Medicaid, which have really changed the rules around reimbursement structures and are heavily focused on on actually penalizing. Uh, health systems uh, for not just for poor quality of care, but for 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 lack of cost containment or for overutilization. So the drive is is on the prevention side now, coming out of CMS. The second pressure is coming, and and I'll give a tip my hat and give a nod to the employers for this. Uh, they've basically said enough is enough. We're tired of healthcare costs for our employees that are going up at fifteen to twenty or twenty five percent a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, those large self-insured employers are looking at, at the payer market saying, you need to help us with this. And so payers are competing amongst themselves for this large uh, uh, body or volume of business. And so it has now become in the payer's interest to, to figure out how to uh, achieve cost containment. And, and drive these expenses down. Um, and, and I think there's a there's a there's been a bit of a, a push from the public in general. Uh, those folks that are self insured and out on the market independently uh, are are saying enough is enough. And so I think there's a widespread real, realization across the entire healthcare industry um, that there's a better way to do things. So so uh, it sounds like the ultimate person is, of course, the consumer himself who, who benefits the most. Correct. Okay, let's just say that. The second most important person in the or entity would be the corporation who's employing this person. Okay, and True. government employs as much as you know <laughs> as much as the private corporations do. Right. Right. So they benefit a lot when employees healthier. Feeling better, more motivated, et cetera. These are really positive things. Do you have outcome management systems that you show this to people and corporations? And then eventually payers would care, healthcare probably would care because it all filters down if, if we all want a better society. Right. And, and, and so the, the answer to the question, Roland, is what, so we do, but the system does in general. So we can collect data on our end that is, that is showing improvement in these clinical targets and in, and in patient or member engagement. Uh, at the end of the day, we're, we're at, a, we're at a, a point in healthcare where we weren't, I would say, even five or well, certainly not 10 years ago, but even five years ago. The data analytics and big data, which is a nice term that people throw around a lot, it's here. And so, and so the ability to go into claims data and extract information that suggests that a cohort that has gone through a certain program or gone through a certain process is 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 costing us less in terms of annual healthcare spend is is present today like it never was before. Corporations weren't really looking at that. Um, the payers have always been in that space because they're actuaries and that's what they do all day long. But you now see health systems enlisting this kind of data analytics and starting to risk stratify patients and do some predictive analytics around who's going to become sick and who should we be going after actively in terms of active management for wellness and prevention. Uh, Payers are following suit and you've got other companies out there that are benefits managers, uh, for example, Virgin Pulse and Castlight that are doing the exact same thing. That the, uh, the holy grail of that process will be able to take clinical data and merge it with the claims data and, and, and really start to have real time information that can then be made Actionable and take so that it can go from data into information that then takes action in a clinical setting uh, to go to to actually influence patient care. Interesting, because because there's a chart I used to draw 
almost 10 years ago that we've traded off food costs for health costs. And the reason the other guest was on just a while ago about food costs is driving that down because we used to pay about 20% for our food, you know, just it's hard to get and all that stuff. Now we pay about 7% of our GDP and about our personal income for food. And we've traded that 6 7% healthcare costs for now 20% healthcare. So completely exactly. inverted the curve and for a much worse outcome, okay, for everybody. Yes. Uh, systemic issues with disease and, and chronological long, what do they call chronic disease states as well? Correct. That That's absolutely correct. And and along with this shift that we're seeing in healthcare, and it's undeniable, I, I mean, geographically, depending on where you are in the U.S., you can say it's more or less, but the shift is here. And anyone who watches CNN or, or looks at a throwaway journal will, will come to this conclusion, is the shift to wellness and prevention. And the notion that, that, that has been out there for a long time that food is medicine is real today. I would say that 10 or 15 years ago, if you sat in front of a group of physicians and said, food is medicine, they would have been a little woo-woo, okay, uh, yeah. you're, you're a little fringe. Not today. Today, that discussion is happening across the board. And today, we throw out terms like social isolation, food insecurity, all wrapped around the concept of social determinants of health. That's a conversation that is being had in every healthcare system, in every payer, and uh, in every employer space across the country. And, and so the idea is to move people these days. And, and, and it doesn't stop at, at, at food and nutrition and movement necessarily. Uh, it extends to transportation. It extends to living circumstance. Uh, it extends across the board. And so things are, these issues are being tackled today in a way that, that makes me really proud to be a physician in a lot of ways. But at the same time, it makes you wonder why we weren't doing this 10 or 15 years ago. Uh. Oh, well, a lot of things we could say that too. Um, but thank you. And it's really impressive what you're, what you're working on. So, so what I want to do is kind of frame this conversation a little more about the model again, because it's, it's, uh, to enlighten our listeners and even myself for that matter. Um, so, so what we're saying is you're getting paid to deliver services to individuals who are at risk, so to speak, right? That's correct. And, and you're getting paid on a monthly basis, okay, from these, Payers or healthcare system, mostly payers, is what you're saying. Correct. Um, and well, it's they, both. It's it's on the payer side and on the clinical side. Okay, both, uh, and and that's to take care of them, to have an individual care and take interest in their own well-being. Really, is what they're doing. That's correct. And is there a reward for that individual besides better health? Uh, is there a reward? So while we, so let, let me answer that question by Compliance saying. Clients being the thing I'm kind of driving to. Exactly. So the, the reward in the sense of the, you know, is there a, is there a, a, a gym membership or a discount or is there some tangible reward? So while Monge Health doesn't, doesn't, necessarily provide that, uh, I can definitively tell you that, that both the clinical partner and the employer partners that we're working with are offering incentives. So if there's a, an interest in there being an incentive for somebody to succeed, that can come in the form. And there are some restrictions in the clinical setting about what can be provided versus what can't. But that could come in the form of a gym membership or or that could come in the form of a, a food voucher for a grocery store. Right. That could come in the form of a reduction in in um, co-payment at the end of the year right. or in a refund of sorts from your employer. Right. We don't, we may drive that outcome. We may drive um, the success for a particular individual. Uh, the, the tangible incentive is going to come from another setting. Uh, for us, we create a kind of a, a gamified 
program that people uh, are engaged in that's extremely consumer-friendly with a user experience like has never been designed for a clinical product before, yeah. and, and then the social network and the connectivity associated with it. Wow. Okay. So you said gamified. Great, great word. Great use. And a lot of people are trying to use that in today's well-being space as well. And to get behavior modification, make people engage with it. Um, so is this platform launched now? Is it about to launch? I mean, I know you had prior platforms and it's working for a bunch of clients, but you have a new version coming out shortly. Is we that what's we do have a new version coming out shortly and our, and our launch date is just around the corner, literally. Okay. Uh, when I say around the corner, I mean in two days. <laughs> wow. And this is our latest version that is coming out. Uh, it's a very robust uh, tool that's going to be deployed. Um, and we're starting with a, a small cohort of roughly seven to 10,000 folks. Uh, by the end of uh, uh, June or so, we expect that number to be closer to a million. Uh, we are also set to launch within the next two to three weeks with a clinical partner. Uh, and that is going to be uh, a pilot program, not a go or no go type of thing, but more to refine the billing process and the clinical workflow uh, we're expecting within the next three to four months to roll that out along a number of clinical practices with the same partner. So, okay. so it's 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 fully it's it's fully baked. It's 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 being deployed at literally as we speak. Yeah. And uh, we're the team is I can't begin to tell you how excited we are to to see uh, ten to twelve months of work come to fruition. So our audience, if they wanted to download or play with it? Could they, or are they have to be part of a system that gives us to them? They would need to be part of a system that okay, gives us right to them. They can explore it and they can research it uh, on our website, right. uh, but they would have to be part of a system that... Or, or uh, pay the, the great fee that you receive for that application, right? Exactly. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, good. So, so unless our, and you are working with all these different providers and rolling it out carefully. And that's a cohort for audience again means addressable market almost in a way. It's, it's a, a number of applicants that can sign on if they so choose. Correct. Right. Okay. So you have a, and, and they're encouraged to, I guess, by their, um, association organization they're part of they're heavily encouraged to, um, yeah. there was a time. So that's a good question, Roland. You just, you just, you, you just prompted a thought, which is very important. There was a time in, in healthcare where we just sat back and waited for people to get sick and come to us. Uh, that has shifted uh, completely 180. Um, the entities we're working with are actively going out using this risk stratification and using these patient matching engines that are becoming more commonplace, actively locating those folks that need the intervention and then engaging them in ways like never before to put, to pull them in. So it's, it's a, it's a form of active patient management that hasn't existed in years past that is yeah. becoming increasingly the norm. Wow. Okay. Well, let me, uh, Take a short break here. I'm Roland Vandermeer, and my guest this hour is uh, David Amin. He's the Chief Operating Officer and Chief Health Officer of Maj Health. Stay with us as we continue our conversation after the break. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures, a special show called Money That Matters on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. And welcome back to Bay Area Ventures on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Roland Vandermeer, doing a special segment on Money That Matters. And my guest this hour is David Amin, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Health Officer at Maj Health. 
when we left off, we were just talking about his business model and how people engage and all that. And I think it's fascinating. And, and Dave, Dave, and uh, I guess Adam DeVito are, are kind of his CEO of this company are heading up something I think is very unique and finally showing the world that we can get people to change, modify behavior to do preventative care, basically, and take care of their own health and engage their own well-being. And we talked about the blue zones and how people there are socially connected, but they eat the right foods, too. So you're trying to bring all that mindfulness and food habits and movement habits and all that to people. And I think it's fascinating. Um, and, uh, just to, again, say I'm a very small investor here, but an investor nonetheless, and I'm a big fan of how they're doing it and what they're approaching. And as Dave mentioned just earlier, they're about to go live in two days with a, with the next generation platform with a whole bunch of payers, providers that are engaging them right now to roll out because they have some data. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Um, I, I know there's history here and a lot of history of, of Adam working this hard and you've been here a year now and you jumped on because you saw this as the f- potential, the future to shape where healthcare is going, to be in front of the care instead of after the care, after the so things happened, right? Correct. Correct. And there is some history here, and and we can we can stay, take a step back in time. I don't here. want to hit too much history. What I want to understand okay. is the data behind it. Like, what makes you think this really works? And that that was the key thing for I think people to look at. And say, does this really work? And is there right. proof points here? Because that that was key for me to understand too. Right. So I think when we step back and we look at the data, um, I, I would say that even today, but certainly five or 10 years ago, you would tell somebody, oh, behavior change, and they would look at you and say, oh, that's really hard work, <laughs> and, and we're not sure it's it's doable. Today, all the focus is on behavior change, and I think what we've seen in terms of data, and certainly we've seen it with, with Monge, which is why Monge is even in, in this space right now, because they've been so successful, is that at the at the end of the day, it's about engagement. It, 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 it's, it's, it's not about clinical data. It's not about prescriptions. It's not about carrots and sticks for folks. It's, it's literally about how do you engage them? And the data around engagement is actually pretty good. And, uh, suffice it to say, it's not coming from the clinical world. It's coming from the consumer world. And so uh, the data itself in terms of engagement that, that Monge has produced and, and the work that it has done is in the corporate wellness space and in its diabetes prevention program, which is the highest perform, one of the highest performing DPP programs on the market, is all about the way in which it's been structured. So we're, we're seeing engagement rates that are, that are through the roof. I mean, literally with, with simply the Monge uh, nutrition platform itself, engagement rates of of 40 45% wow wow of Dave. of these lar- large employers that are using the program and that's what was so compelling to me are they sticking with it they are sticking with it i mean we're seeing monthly engagement rates of somebody using this product on a monthly basis and we're, we're tracking all that in in a very robust data uh, data analytics platform that's on the back end wow that that was that is what was compelling to me, and I, and I think I, I need to speak if if with your a little bit of latitude here, uh, Roland, sure. about, about the team because that's not coming from the clinical setting, okay? Where, which is where we prescribe things and we call patients non-compliant and <laughs> and we essentially shame them uh, to the point where it's not fun to go see your doctor. Why would it be? This is a group of the t- so let me talk about the team and hats off to these guys. So this is a group uh, that comes from a consumer products background. And uh, forever from Procter and Gamble to Adam Devito, who was the head chef uh, chef at Kraft, and then did food consulting for a number of years, uh, including all the way down to Steve Harshbarger, our chief technology officer. Uh, so these folks are these folks have been building tools on the consumer side for a very long time, uh, and they've taken a very unique 
consumer approach toward it. Uh, we use terms at Monch Health like user experience, and let's walk through the user's experience. Uh, it's it's rare when you find somebody to say patient experience. Let's walk through the patient's experience. That just doesn't happen in the everyday world. And so what a, what a, a wonderful group of consumer product specialists have done is take that the years and years, and we're talking about a seasoned team. We're, we're all a little long in the tooth and gray in the hair. Have taken that skill set. Not all of you, I know. <laughs> There's a, a few young ones. But we've taken that skill set and, and really applied it to into a program that, that's highly clinically rigorous. And, and that's where the differentiator is. I mean, I, I've often told people, when is the last time any, anybody built something for the patient that, that looked even remotely like a user experience? It's usually a Xerox copy of the food pyramid, or it's a brief 15-minute lecture with your doctor, and then you're out the door, or here's a prescription in hand. This is very different. Um, this is a group of folks that, uh, that have been identifying how to engage with consumers for, for 20, 30 years that have taken that skill and expertise and said, how do we do this to something in a clinical setting? It's actually really good for people. And that's what makes this uh, so, so much fun to work with. It's a clinical tool. The patient doesn't know or the member has no idea they're engaged in a clinical process. It's too much fun for them. Wow. Okay. Uh, like using Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever gets you excited about looking at your phone. This is a very similar uh, type of notion. Is it, could I use the analogy of Peloton, you know, the, the exercise yeah, absolutely. company, and they're a, just growing, and they're worth how many billions? I don't know. But. It's, a, it's a great example. Peloton's a good example. I, you know, we're not here to advertise tools, but, but I go to Cycle Bar. <laughs> uh, I don't like cycling, to be perfectly honest. But it's hard not to like Cycle Bar because it's like going to a nightclub, except there's no beer. <laughs> yeah. And there's music, and there's people around you, and everybody's having a good time, and they're socializing afterwards. It's the same idea. Idea, is that we've taken something that normally wouldn't sound like fun, right. and we ignore that, and we say, "Guess what? This is not only is this fun, but you're going to believe me." Yeah, I could see group settings and social interaction and all that on the platform as well. Is that right? It's exactly it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Heavy on the on on the social connectivity. There are group chats. There are obviously. Uh, group activities that members can interact. There are also group coaching sessions where people have an opportunity to share experiences. It, it's all part of it. Yeah, that's fantastic. So so you're building a community, if you will, and, and your channel is a traditional channel in a way that needs this desperately for this community to engage and yes. take care of themselves. Yes, that's exactly it. We're, bu we're building a community. In, in some ways, we, we've stepped back and said what we really want to do is build a movement. Uh, yeah. And build a movement in a channel that that reaches people. You know, yeah. we want to we want to we want to meet people where they live, work, and play. Uh, but we wanted the widest reach possible. You know, we weren't necessarily interested in reaching the top ten percent of all, you know, top three percent of all ten percent wage earners. Uh, we have gone, as our CEO says, into the belly of the beast uh, on, on a mission uh, to change uh, the way people view their relationship with food and movement in, wow. in a very positive way. And the the movement part of this is important too because it's it's just breathing and being and all that stuff but you can't take it to the Pendleton or um, soul cycle or something like that that crazy stuff because we all know what happens there it kind of is disheartening when you jump in I jump in those classes I can bike it kills me sometimes but you've actually created programs that are really energetic and yet still very much for 
everybody who who is suffering a little bit. That's absolutely right, Roland. I mean, we've taken a view, and I and as a, 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 a I'm stealing this from a friend of mine, uh, and and I'll give her credit, uh, even though she's never, I'm sure she's not listening. But we've tried to democratize uh, both both nutrition and certainly movement. Um, not everybody. We recognize that there's sort of an inner athlete inside everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just need to rediscover it. We were all born that way. We haven't all evolved that way. Yeah. And uh, and so there's something for everybody. Not everybody's comfortable going into a gym. Not right. everybody's comfortable strapping on workout clothes and being seen in public. We understand that. And so the movement piece of this is extremely important. It's not about running a marathon. Great if you do. It's not about, you know, power lifting at the gym. Wonderful if, if that's what you're up to. It's about moving your body in ways you might not even have thought. It's about taking a walk. It's about joining uh, the fitness platform that we have integrated into what we are doing. Um, which are which are online live classes where a coach can physically see what you're doing. If you choose, you can perhaps see other members. And and these courses are run practically 18 hours a day at convenient times, and they're brief. These are these are these, and they, and they cover a spectrum of things. It might be Zumba, it might be something, something else. It might be simple calisthenics. It might be akin to a boot camp if you're up to that. And you can pick and choose what you want to engage with. And these courses are designed to be 15, 20 minutes. We've also taken an approach that movement does not mean you have to go out and run for an hour and a half. Uh, great if that's what you're into. Most of us don't have the time the energy or perhaps even the fitness to do that, that three, 10 or 12 or 15 minute sessions or two of those is as good as 45 minutes or an hour. And there's something that you can do within the space of your day, wherever you work, wherever you live, wherever you play. And so I'm going to get back to that term, um, uh, democratize movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause, cause, cause I love the idea of that. Hmm. Hmm. Fantastic. So that, that sets you up with, with a good company out there, with the companies out there that are really hitting out of the park, and you're going to be like one of them, aren't you? I, there's no doubt that we're going to be one of them. It's, it's, a, it's a unique channel, and I appreciate that. Um, but, the, but again, we come back to the roots of this company. What the roots are is how do we help people engage with food and being in a way that's mindful and caring and self, self-healing in a way, okay? And, and there's something you mentioned earlier on. I heard it very loud and clear. This is like we're not here to to punish, to to upset you. We're here to encourage and be supportive in a way. And doctors tend to be a little more punitive and harsh. And you're saying that that's not the way forward because it doesn't really work for most people. It doesn't work, and it may work for a short term. Think about going to your dentist, and they ask you, "Do you floss?" And you're embarrassed. Yeah, about three days no. before I right. go. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It. And, and many times I've asked patients, "You know, do you smoke?" No, I quit smoking. When did you quit smoking? Three days ago. You know, before I got sick, and now I'm in the doctor's <laughs> office. So it's all. You know, traditional medicine has been prescriptive, and we. You know, it's it's embedded. We call our patients non-compliant. You know, without any regard to the fact that they have no transportation or don't have the money for their prescriptions, and that's why they're not taking it. So we've taken a different approach at Monge. This is not about shaming people. We've all been shamed to death, and we're not any healthier for it. We've taken the approach that it's not even about education, because we all kind of know what we probably should be doing, uh, but we don't do it. It's about discovering that inside of us, we have a sense we, we have the autonomy uh, to to master ourselves internally. 
and and to move forward in a very positive way and to and to discover and to, so the program of Monge is designed to really get people to explore and discover that they're not losing something. If I tell you you have to change, Roland, I say stand up and change one thing about yourself. You might take your glasses off. You might take a ring off. Uh, and, and, and this has been well studied. People don't, don't view change as gaining something. Um, the, the cuff cup half full approach would be to pick up your coffee cup and say, there, I changed something. I just added something to my routine. Right. And so we've taken the approach that, that behavior modification is, is about gaining something. It's about gaining mastery over yourself, not being enslaved by McDonald's or whatever your bad habit is, or smoking, for example, or even substance misuse. But it's about gaining control over yourself so that you're making your own decisions in a very mindful way yeah. and, and becoming healthy in the process. Okay, well, you're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Roland Vandermeer. I'm joined here by my studio guest, Dave Amin, who is Chief Health Officer and Chief Operating Officer of Maj Health. Uh, if you have any questions, please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Dave, so, so we're talking about change in behavior, but the, the business model is, is, is always where I come back to, you know, how this all works and put it together because you're doing some amazing things. But it starts with the premise is how do we help people out, okay? That's the premise. And what's the best way to reach people and how do we change it? And you mentioned earlier Adam DeVito was a, a head chef or executive chef of Kraft Foods. That's, that's a irony if there's ever irony. My, my macaroni and cheese has a chef behind it. But um, <laughs> I remember his claim to fame was launching Del Giorno Pizza. You know, that was the healthiest he could come out with there. And I think he was very That's frustrated correct. there. But Kraft is going through their problems, as we know. Uh, if you read about it in the paper, Kraft Heinz is faltering all over the place. It's about time. Their food is really dead food. And that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about live food, food that's good for you, nutritious. Right. And, and, and Maj is using the partners in the, in the medical establishment, I believe the payers, providers, doctors, et cetera, to encourage people to get on this platform because they see the results and it would help their, their, their caretaking of these patients. Okay. In a way, and maybe it makes the doctor more mindful too, about how they interact with their patients, seeing results, which would be fantastic. So loved all that, love all that, and the fact you're getting people to pay you for it, not the individuals, but the actual providers and uh, payers to take care of that. Right. That, that's, that makes uh, Maj really interesting. Um, so, so you're about to launch another, you already have customers now. You've been running for a couple, two, three years right now with the platform. Uh, the first versions of it, right? That's correct. So, so that we've been operating in the in the corporate wellness space uh, for for several years now. With the existing Monge Nutrition platform, uh, the iTrim program, of course, which we acquired about 10 months ago, has been incorporated. Uh, we actually had a preliminary version that went out into medical fitness centers, which we've had some experience with now, that helped inform and, and educate our ongoing design efforts. And so the version that's coming out now is... Uh, it, it, has all those basic functionalities in it, but it's much enhanced, um, wow. and it's it's a it's a fully baked version that 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 we're going to be rolling out within a couple of days. So this has been an evolution. Uh, yeah, in some in some some ways, folks look and say, "Oh, it's a pivot from this to that." It's really not. It's an evolution because the believe it or not, the employer space, the corporate wellness space, the payer space, the clinical space, they're all converging down the same final common pathway. Yeah, which is how do how do we move people in the right direction? And so this has been an evolution. Of a, of a mission and a passion for Monge. And you referenced uh, uh, our CEO, Adam DeVito's background and craft. I'm going to speak for Adam because he's not here today. 
Okay. Uh, because he's working <laughs> and has been for probably 72 hours straight getting ready for the launch. But uh, he often said he went to Kraft to change Kraft and discovered Kraft was changing him. And that was the point at time at which he said, I really have developed this wealth of skills. He's a classically trained French chef that started in French kitchen, kitchens when he was 12. He's written 12 books on, on cooking and nutrition. He started cooking schools. Uh, he realized that he, he has, his whole life had been around trying to do something uh, good and worthwhile, a very mission-driven individual, uh, and it finally became time for him to to leave the you know the food industrial complex and and go off and and live at his dream. And he's found some very willing partners and very skilled partners, and I was thrilled to join as well. Wow, wow, that's a hell of a background, and uh, you have a background yourself that's incredible. And the team, likewise, I think, all shares in this passion and drive, and has been incredible. Um, so, so you right now are on the cusp of this launch, so it's really exciting to talk to you, and I really appreciate you showing up here when I know you guys are probably sure. busy as all get out here. But um, so, so what we're expecting to see in this next year is, as you mentioned, the cohorts or the group you're addressing in the next year, it could be just a meteoric growth kind of thing coming up. And uh, is the firm ready for that, you know, to kind of handle that kind of growth rate right now? That's a great question, Roland, and we've, we've been asking ourselves that. Uh, for some time now, uh, I would say that that two months ago when when this prospect started looming in front of us and we weren't really sure what the magnitude of the opportunity was, we, we hadn't given a tremendous amount of thought to how quickly we needed to scale. Um, that changed in a very big way uh, over the last two months. And uh, scalability is going to be everything to us. Um, we're expecting uh very large volumes of folks to be rolling on, given the fact that they're going to be actively placed into our program and there is no out-of-pocket expense to them. Uh, and just the nature of the program, once they're introduced to it, they're, they're, they're going to be excited. You mentioned the 45% stick rate. You know That's with the wellness platform. I mean, we think uh, that our trajectory within and, and our, our stick rate, as you put it, uh, within the program that we're developing now is going to be much higher. Uh, it's, a, it's a very active platform. You don't need to come to it. It's coming to you. Uh, and it's being built in a way that I, I just, I can't, it's, I can't imagine people won't become an addicted and I hate the word addicted, but in a very good way, yeah. uh, to do, to, to proceeding with this and to staying with it. The question of scalability is one that, that, you know, we have struggled with. We, we feel like we're there. Uh, we have hired our initial cadre of coaches. Uh, we were successful in hiring a, a brilliant registered dietitian with a master's in nutrition, Rebecca Theeneman. Mm. Uh, thank you to Rebecca for joining the Monge team, who is building out our coaching network. The coaching network uh, that we're in that is in development right now, and the first handful have already gone through the training and are ready, literally sitting there waiting. Is so called our operators are standing by, our coaches are standing. But by. you had you had a lot of experience with coaches before. I mean, the co platform has been around, and they've we did coaches. This Platform's is this been is something known for. Th this is an expansion of the work we had currently right. or, or previously been doing. Uh, and, and something that uh, is new and just out of the box, I think, and a little fresh here, is that uh, we are going to be partnering with an organization that is using a coaching certification license from the National Board of Medical Examiners. Oh, so fantastic. there's going to be an extraordinary level of credibility uh, to, to the coaches that we're working with, and it, it's it's they're going to it's going to be a great asset. That 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 process is in the works right now. So so say like you're wildly successful here and everything goes well and people start signing on, which is likely to happen here coming up based on everything I've seen and heard. Right. And I do believe in your back end. There's some great engineering talent there that's uh, delivered that, um, and uh, a tribute to a lot of hard work to a lot of people. But 
you're successful. So, so let me understand that. So who stands to lose here? And I'm going to ask a cynical question. Pharma stands to lose. They can't give any more pills. People with right. heart conditions, no more statins. Thank God, by the way, because statins are awful for everybody, which we now found out. And pharma's under a lot of pressure with the government and everything like yeah. that. So, so they stand to lose something by getting people healthier. And how is that going to sit with everybody? Is that okay? You think it'll just be course of usual? I think it's not only okay, uh, I, I think it's going to happen. I do. And maybe I'm just an eternal optimist, but there are so many pressures today to do the right thing that I think the people that are profiting, and I'm going to use the term perversely here, which is a term I use frequently, that are perversely profiting from illness uh, need to start doing what tobacco companies did years ago is looking for other industries to branch off into, whatever that might be. Like yours. <laughs> like ours, uh, because health and wellness is where it's at. That's what's getting attention. That's what's getting funded these days. Uh, and I, we hear it again and again. And, and if, if people don't want to believe me or believe the commercial payer world or even the employer space, I'm hard pressed not to believe the employer space because they've been some of the most vocal about this process. Go look at, at CMS. CMS has made no bones about it, and they have unilaterally changed the rules about what gets reimbursed and what doesn't. Who's CMS, by the way? Centers for uh, Medicare and Medicaid. Okay. And so what folks often don't realize is they're the largest insurance company in the United States, given right. the number of people that, 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 that they insure outright. Right. And they have changed the rules in a way, and they're, they're like the 900-pound gorilla or the big elephant. When they, when they shrug, everybody else takes notice and has to move, too. And uh, they're now penalizing health systems. I mean, there's no no bones about it. If you can't keep your 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 attributed patients healthy, you're going to lose money, and you're going to wrap it worse than that. Not only are going to we're not going to pay you, we're going to take your money and penalize you, and we're going to give it to the highest performing entities that are doing the, the job correctly. So we're seeing a shift here, and pharma can can complain, and they can take generics and rebrand them or tweak them to become you know, brand name again, but, but the tide has turned and, and it's not turning back. So, you know, those folks that, but they're strong. I mean, look at the tobacco industry. Smoking was supposed to be, you know, terrible. Look, it's come back with a vengeance because they advertised to a unsuspecting population. Yeah, they've um, gotten into vaping and other things. So, and, yeah. uh, you know, the pharma, like the, the whole statin thing just blew me away. We've talked about this, I think in the past, but right. here's something we're supposed to take for cholesterol, which is not the indicator that we're all should be looking at at all. In fact, that's a very harmful drug that people right. have been taking. And and no one realizes it, but if you read the literature, and it's still one of the big sellers, still pushed by doctors, and yet we know it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Well, let, let, Rowan, let me put it this way. One of our clinical milestones for the payer that we have a contract with is medication de-escalation. That's it, plain and simple. Yeah. They're paying us to help move a patient in a direction that reduces the number of medications they're on and allows them to achieve lifestyle management. Is that of, like their capitation? Is that the same idea, medical de-escalation? So, so not exactly. So de-escalation of medications would mean if, I, if I'm a diabetic and Take I'm less. on two or three different medications trying to control it, it's very expensive and it's unhealthy. And we know that those medications only actually in a very contradictory way lead to weight gain okay which is which becomes a, a vicious cycle Counter. so we actually uh, are getting paid and incentivized to to take patients off those medications wow get them okay. to lifestyle management okay. so so you know i guess big pharma put that in your pipe and smoke it so to speak <laughs> 
<laughs> Speaking like a true doctor here. <laughs> well, since consider they do all the education for all the med schools and pay for all the continuing medical education credits, it's a tough game to go after. It is. They're powerful and they're big. But this trend, I think, is inevitable because corporations and people are tired of it. They're and, done. And, they're, and there's too much to be paid. And that curve of trading off food costs for health costs is, is over. It has to be reversed now. Let's pay right. more for food and be healthier and enjoy ourselves. And we can look at a number of large corporations that have succeeded in that in that effort and are working down that pathway. And they're very vocal. Walmart's a good example. Michelin of North America is another fantastic example. Right. They have all um, gone into this head first. That's excellent. That's excellent. So so if we had to reach you, uh, Maj Health, and how do you spell Maj is a really important thing. Our audience yes. doesn't understand So Maj is M-O-N-J. It's a bit of a phonetic spelling of a French word, uh, which means eat. Okay. Maj.com. Monge.com. So That's, people can go to either Monge.com or Mongewell. Uh, they can explore the offering. They can explore the company. Um, We've we've got a really big vision, and we are realizing it. That's what that's the take home message. Is it's not just a vision; we're executing on it today. So exciting! So this is excellent. And fortunately, we are out of time. And thank you for coming to the show, David. And uh, I think our listeners know where to find you now: MajHealth.com or Maj.com. Maj.com. Thank you so much for joining us. If you missed any of the last two hours, feel free to check it out on demand at Sirius XM app, and be sure to follow our channel on Twitter. Uh, Radio Business Radio 132. You can follow me at uh, RA underscore Vandermeer. As a reminder, each day we are live Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific time here on the West Coast. Um, Thank you very much. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 